Support for KBUT is brought to you by Townie Books and Rumors Coffee and Tea House, serving Allegro organic coffee and fine loose-leaf teas. Townie Books stocks new books and can special order anything. Drink coffee, read books, fight evil. Welcome to the West Oak Word, an original production of KBUT News. I'm Mark Dugan. Jonathan Thompson is an award-winning environmental journalist and former editor and now writer for High Country News. His most recent book is River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster, a mine spill that happened in La Plata County in 2015. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit more about the book, and of course, you have a history in the Four Corners. You lived in, you've lived in Durango for years. You've lived in Silverton. What made you the right person to write about what was probably one of the worst, worst environmental disasters in Colorado history? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think, well, for one thing, I was there when it happened, when the Gold King mine disaster happened, and uh, happened to be right there next to the river, pretty much, and. So I, I kind of witnessed it, but probably more importantly is um, my background as a, uh, a native of the area. I lived in Silverton for 10 years, which is where, where the Gold King Mine is, just above Silverton, and worked for the Silverton Standard and the Miner and owned it, uh, the newspaper there, for, for several years and uh, did a lot of coverage of this issue of uh, draining mines and mine-related pollution and the legacy of mining in that area and in other areas. So it was lucky kind of that I was there at the time because I already had all of the context um, for what this was. That was something that was really lacking in a lot of the coverage of this disaster, as, as is the case in the coverage of many disasters or breaking news, you know, you trying to keep up with what's going on and, and the reporters don't have time to go after the background and the context. Um, I was lucky enough just to have that context already and to know a lot about those that mine and the mines around it already. So in your work with the Silverton newspaper, The Miner, did you ever do a story back then that you know now sort of foreshadowed the Gold King spill? Yeah, well, I don't know if I would have ever predicted that that would have happened. Um, certainly, though, I did cover issues with the American Tunnel. Um, I happened to arrive in Silverton in 1996, almost exactly the same time that the Sunnyside Mine Company put the first bulkhead or plug in the American Tunnel, which ultimately these plugs, they put three plugs into the American Tunnel. Ultimately, that plugging of it led to, essentially led to the Gold King Mine disaster because it backed up a bunch of water in what had been the the last mine in Silverton to run in Silverton and a huge mine, the Sunnyside Mine, backed up a bunch of water in the American Tunnel and backed it up. That's what was coming out of the Gold King and then got stopped up in the Gold King and then burst out in one crazy moment. A blowout, as they call it. But before that blowout, there had been drainage leaking from that site. Correct. Yeah. And historically, there was not um, drainage out of that mine. It's interesting. In the 80s and the 90s, when other companies were thinking of mining the Gold King, they didn't need to get a state discharge permit because there was no water coming out of it, which is super unusual for 
any kind of mine in the uh, Silverton area. And, and part of the reason for that is because the American Tunnel, which was actually originally dug by the Gold King owners back in the 20s, that it actually drained it. it. It was below the Gold King, and it served as sort of like a bathtub drain for that mine. So all the all the water was going through that. And so the Gold King mine wasn't draining at all until they plugged up the American Tunnel, and then suddenly everything changed. That was in the early 2000s that people started noticing uh, that the Gold King mine was draining. And within a few years, the Gold King mine became one of the worst polluters, mining-related polluters in the state of Colorado. Then the draining kind of slowed down significantly, and people weren't really sure exactly why, uh, but a lot of people suspected that the reason was because some debris had fallen down and created a dam, and water was backing up. Everybody kind of knew this, and then the EPA went in there and kind of screwed around without really testing that uh, very adequately, and, and that's three million gallons of sludge and water and, and heavy metals came bursting out of there. There was a delay of almost 24 hours in getting the word out that the mine had been breached and heavy metals laden wastewater was making its way down the Animus River. Jonathan, in researching your book, did you ever get to the bottom of what caused that delay? Uh, there was kind of some hemming and hawing about that, but the EPA eventually, they kind of said, well, you know, we didn't really think anybody would notice. <laughs> there was some issues with... Uh, where they were was pretty high up in the mountains and and there's it's hard to get a signal sometimes so so there was some question about you know whether they were able to get out immediately the word out they certainly waited longer than you would expect i mean after they got out and got to a place where they could get a radio signal they should have of course notified everybody silverton the town of silverton which is about 6 or 7 miles below where the blowout occurred they didn't find out about it until I think it was the sheriff was driving up the road, saw, you know, this orange water and saw that a culvert had been blown out. You know, so in, in Durango, we found out, I mean, I found out about tw exactly 24 hours after it happened when the water, about the time the water was hitting Baker's Bridge, which is really the first place that you can see. That's about 10 miles above Durango, and it's the first place that you can really see the river in that stretch because it goes through a gorge. Mm -hmm. And so it came out just this horrid yellow-orange tang color. <laughs> and uh, before long, the pictures of it were kind of going viral. There's a picture, um, usually, of the animus just north of Durango, crisscrossing its way through the Valley Plain, and it's the color of mustard. What is in that water yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that the, the actual color, as shocking as it was, is created by iron hydroxide, which is not super harmful mm -hmm. um, as far as that goes. It's the same same color that you'll see when you're going up uh, on Red Mountain Pass uh, between Uray and Silverton. You look up at Red Mountain, and it's iron hydroxide. They actually use it as, as a food coloring in Europe. I don't think it's allowed as a food coloring in United States, but it is used in paints and crayons and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's not super harmful in itself, but it's the metals that come along with that that are very harmful. Um, zinc is a is a big one that's in there, and that's harmful to fish and aquatic life. Uh, cadmium, copper, arsenic, uh, aluminum, silver—all uh, these things can be super toxic to fish and to bugs. Um, and and lead was in there as well, and that's of course, pretty harmful to humans. Luckily, mercury is not a, a big presence 
in Silverton, in the Silverton caldera. So mercury was not in the water in very high levels. Um, that would have been a much bigger problem, I think. But the estimate is that there was about 880,000 pounds of metals that came out of that mine. And where did they go? Were they deposited on the stream beds, wash? I mean, probably some washed down into Blake Powell, but some of them presumably embedded themselves in the stream beds, and then the next spring runoff, they might have gotten stirred up again. Yeah, that's correct. So certainly right after it happened, you know, the river cleared up and the water looked fine, but on the along the edges of the river, you would see this orange, this, that same color of orange-yellow uh, sediment all along the edge and on the rocks for weeks afterwards. And then the monsoons came and the river would rise and it would turn that color kind of again, but much less dramatic. It took a while for it to flush down. Of course, as it flushes down, it just moves downstream and probably settles somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And of course, the animus as it joins the San Juan and moves toward Lake Powell moves a little more slowly. Satellage might be more of an issue, say, on the Navajo Reservation, where the San Juan is relatively sedate at times. Correct. The further downstream you get, the less concentrated this slug, is what I call it, of three million gallons of stuff, uh, that it was less concentrated as you went downstream. So it was actually less harmful. But the further downstream you get, in some ways, the more reliant the people are on the water for different reasons. So when you're in Silverton, like I said before, people don't really go down and play in the river. They don't use it for irrigation. They don't use it for drinking water. They don't use it for any of that stuff, you know. So there it was the most concentrated, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Down at Durango, people use the river to play in mostly. Um, and that was a bigger deal sort of emotionally and economically. And then as you get further down onto the Navajo Nation there, they use it for irrigation. They use it for drinking water, you know, and also the river has uh, spiritual significance. Though the concentration decreased as you went downstream, I almost think that the impact increased in this sort of strange way. So um, that's one of the interesting things. And the Navajo Nation, people down there are still grappling with this. They're still worried. Some farmers still will not irrigate their fields. They've, they've let their fields go fallow because basically they're scared and they, they don't. You know, EPA officials and other officials have come down and said, you know, the water's fine, it's back to normal, but they're, they don't trust it. Mm. I went down to Shiprock um, on the reservation this past spring, and we had a, a sort of a seminar about this, and just a lot of people were very, were still visibly upset about the whole thing and still scared. They, they did not want to put the water on their fields. The river is much, much more than recreation for them. It's livelihood, life, and it's sacred. Correct. This is the West Elk Word on KBUT. I'm Mark Dugan. We're talking to Jonathan Thompson, who has written a book called River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster, the mine spill that happened up above Silverton in 2015. I lived in Durango at that time, as you did. I lived just a few blocks from the river. And I remember that evening 
crowds were gathering on the bridges, waiting to see this slug, as you call it, of mustard yellow water pass through town. It didn't eventually pass through town until sometime in the middle of the night. So everyone saw the river in its normal state that evening, woke up the next morning to a mustard yellow river, and there was a palpable sense of fear in the community. Even though the animus is not a primary source of drinking water for Durango, how did you feel standing there on the banks of the animus, seeing that water, knowing its effects, not just on the people in Durango, but the people downstream? Um, I, you know, I think I had sort of mixed feelings. I mean, on the one hand, I kind of felt like this isn't as big of a deal as some people are making it out to be. Well, okay, I won't say it's not wasn't as big of a deal, but it wasn't as extraordinary as people made it out to be. Um, you know, I think for people who who hadn't understood the river or maybe who were new or or whatever, they had seen the river as this pristine kind of undisturbed uh, stream, you know, that gurgled through town and there was fish swimming around. Uh, the fact is, is that the, the river is far from pristine and hasn't been for uh, over 100 years because of mining, because of the intensive mining upstream and the, the tailings that had been dumped in there on purpose from the mines. Uh, you know, they, the mines had used it as a dumping ground, um, as, as had the towns. They used the, the, the town dump of Silverton was pretty much in the river. And they, there's an estimated eight to nine million tons of tailings was purposely deposited into the river. Um, and then in the as late as the 70s and the 80s, there were tailings pond breaches. Basically, it looked like it did during the Gold King spill, slightly different color, less orange, uh, more of an aluminum paint color, as one reporter called it. That killed a lot of fish, um, and it probably had a more devastating effect. So my feeling when that happened was like, oh, well, here we go again, kind of. Um, but Clearly, the uh, the reaction was much more um, dramatic than it had been before. I didn't really feel fear, but I, I was certainly worried about it and worried about the effects to, to fields, to irrigators. Um, and, of course, I knew that downstream Aztec and Farmington, you know, some pretty big towns rely on the Animas River for their drinking water. All right, so we're talking about a river that hasn't been pristine in more than a century, and in fact... It's got a reputation. You can fish the animus, but don't necessarily eat the fish. What made the Gold King spill different for the animus river? Um, I mean, I think part of it is just the different way that we view the river. I mean, which is a good thing. I think that we value it a lot more. I mean, certainly when Durango and Silverton were built um, and when all towns at that time were built, you know, you look at the maps of those towns and you look at what they put next to the river. Mm -hmm. and it's always industry. Why? Because it's a great dump. That was actually an early complaint in Durango that even in the 1890s and stuff that the slaughterhouses were dumping all their awful mm -hmm. into the river um, and sawmills and the smelter uh, and the uranium mill um, in Durango was another big thing that there was uranium tailings being dumped into the river daily. Uh, for many, many years. And so that's how the river used to be seen. And then there was this transition, and it, it was very slow, but it happened, you know, through the environmental movement and through the transition of, of Durango from an industrial town to a recreational amenities town, 
where the river became an integral part of the quality of life. Here in this part of Colorado, we don't have quite the mining legacy that the area around Silverton does. Of course, there is mining history around Crested Butte and Gunnison and Taylor Park, etc., but nothing like around Silverton. But is there a possibility that a similar spill could happen here from an old mine site, maybe up above Gothic or something that has been long abandoned, forgotten about, is no longer mapped or anything, and just the right you know, synchronicity of events happens and a similar thing happens around here. Uh, yes, I think it could happen. I mean, there's so many abandoned mines around the state, and there many of them are draining water. Um, and if even if they don't normally drain water, they might in a especially wet year because that's groundwater that more groundwater that gets in there. Um, and all it takes is some kind of blockage in there and for the water to back up and then for the blockage to, to bust. And up above Silverton, there are several documented instances of this happening before the Gold King. So it certainly could happen anywhere. And Crested Butte, um, my understanding, and, and I'm no expert on this, but my understanding is that I believe it's the Red Lady Mine is draining into Coal Creek, which comes right through town. And, um, you know, that there's, I believe, a water treatment plant there. That's the type of thing where something can, can go wrong. Uh, maybe the mining company that's paying for the water treatment, they could go out, they could go bankrupt or something and walk away. And then you've kind of got this thing that's a potential problem in the future for sure. And what's happening up at the Gold King site these days? There's a treatment plant there, right? Yeah, so uh, Superfund was designated. It was designated a Superfund site. Actually, a big part of the whole watershed, the upper watershed was. I believe it was 47 sites, um, including the Gold King. They are treating the water out of the Gold King mine, and they're doing some other things. It's moving extremely slowly. The whole process is. It's very frustrating, I think, for Silverton people especially because a lot of them didn't want Superfund in the first place because they felt like uh, volunteer groups and other groups could do it more efficiently, uh, do the same thing more efficiently, and, and have they'd have more local control over it. And so now here it is, Superfund, and not much is being done. Basically, the water from the Gold King is being treated, but there are a few mines that are draining right next to it that are draining quite a bit of bad water as well, and they are, that is not being treated at this point. One of the things about water treatment for this is that it creates a huge amount of sludge because they, they pour calcium carbonate into the water and that the metals and stuff basically fall out of solution and settle to the bottom and that creates this basically kind of a toxic sludge. Um, and then they have to do something with that. And the EPA never really figured out what to do with that. Mm. And so it's been a big deal. Now they're trucking it upstream to another place um, but one of the trucks just crashed into Cement Creek the other day, so uh, dumping some of this stuff out <laughs> into the creek. It just goes to show that mining, uh, you know, it's a good idea to think ahead. <laughs> when you're going into a mining project or any kind of project like this, to think about the long-term consequences, because this mine shut down really in about 1924, the Gold King Mine did. And look, we're still dealing with it and spending millions and millions of dollars 
certainly more than came out of it. It's never going to be fixed. There's never going to be like a fix. There's going to be a water treatment plant probably operating into perpetuity. And it's just one of many mine sites exactly. in the state of Colorado and in the West that poses a risk. Um, in the course of writing this book, you could have spent a good portion of the book talking about the day of the spill and the effects and the fear of people standing there on the bridge and the uncertainty. But you actually chose to give us a little bit more of a background on mining in that part of the world, and in fact in Colorado, and some of the politics and science that led to the blowout. At what point in your research for this book did you realize that this is so much more than that spill, that day, that mine? Um, I realized that pretty early on, I think. In some ways, that's kind of what made me want to write the book, is this is this understanding as I was looking at it of, you know, this was not a one-day event. This was, a, this was a, an event that built up over, over 100 years, you know, that it started, the seeds were planted back in 1887 when the Gold King Mine was first staked. And that everything that happened after that not just at the Gold King Mine, but at all these mines around it and in the area, sort of led up to the Gold King disaster. Um, and so I really wanted to get that whole story in there. And also, I, I wander away from the Gold King Mine and from the Silverton area a lot down the watershed to look at other instances of where the same sort of thing was happening and where the same sort of thing continues to happen. And you get the same sort of... Uh, issues where citizens, concerned citizens, environmentalists, what, what have you, will say, hey, we need to, we need to think about this, this power plant or this, these oil and gas wells. This is a little sketchy. This could lead to something bad down the road. And then you kind of get this pushback, which is always, uh, well, if we, if we mess with them, if we try to regulate them or put environmental protections in place, we'll lose jobs. And uh, so you, you kind of get this standoff. And that's what happened with mining for years, starting in the 1890s, there were people in downstream of Silverton who were saying, hey, you guys need to, you guys just need to change your practices a little bit. You need to clean up your act just a little bit because you're messing up our water down here. You're messing up our crops. You're messing up our drinking water. And, and the uh, mining towns and the mining interests pushed back and didn't do anything for, for, until really the 1930s, they didn't even start doing stuff, and that happened all over, all over the state, including here in the, in the, um, on the Gunnison River, um, in Taylor Park. There were a lot of, uh, um, I think, placer mining operations, I believe, where they blast you know the sand out, and that was killing a lot of fish um, downstream. And this was an important fishery, of course, and. That was in the 1890s as well, that people were saying, hey, whoa, 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 stop. And then money came in and, and they said, okay, well, I guess you can go ahead and do it. What do we do in these little idyllic towns in the West when we've got a ticking time bomb in some cases upstream from us and much of the community just sees the green pastures and the wildflowers and the snow-capped peaks and they forget about the legacy of this part of the world? Yeah, I mean, I I would hope that we do what we can to educate people. I mean, just so that they know more where they're living, and understand that you know, not and not to scare people away or anything like that, but to uh, 
to help them understand so that if if this sort of thing does happen again, or well, maybe they can do something to help stop it from happening. But if it does happen, at least they understand why and where it's coming from, and they're not totally taken off guard. But um, yeah, I think I think understanding the history of where you live is super important, and that includes the the good history and the bad history. You know, and all these places, certainly Crested Butte, certainly Gunnison, certainly Durango, uh, you know, they all have a combination of these things. Um, they have a history. They were, most of them were settled on land that that was inhabited by Utes, um, the Ute people or Navajo people or um, other indigenous people, and they were pushed out forcibly and the land was taken from them in order to basically mine and and log and farm it, you know. Um, and so, you know, that's an ugly kind of history, and it's good for us to just at least acknowledge it um, and not romanticize it and not be try to get away from some of the myths about these Wild West, Old West, you know, the, the pioneer kind of myth and face the truth a little bit. Did you come across anything in the course of researching and writing your book that that really took you by surprise? Something you didn't know? I think my the biggest surprise that I came up with was that I, like many people, I'd kind of assumed that the early miners and and the people living along the river didn't understand what they were doing to the river. They didn't understand pollution. Um, that they were dumping the tailings in the river and they just didn't, they didn't know that that was harmful or they didn't care. They didn't have any kind of consciousness about that. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, then the environmental movement started in the 60s and that's when people started understanding that. Uh, what I realized is that, that that is absolutely not true, that in Colorado there were battles going on up on Clear Creek on the Front Range starting in the early 1880s Farmers were saying, hey, you have to stop dumping your tailings and polluting the river to the miners upstream. You know, so the miners up there in Cripple Creek and and up in um, Blackhawk and, and that area up Clear Creek, they were polluting the streams and it was wrecking people's crops downstream, down on the down by Golden and, and that area. And they knew what it was doing. They understood. And also, and so as I researched and I saw it like, wow, you know, here, here were people, these were environmentalists, essentially. They were doing environmental action. They were trying to stop pollution. And what I then started realizing is that the miners, the mining engineers and the, and the mine owners, that they also knew. Um, in fact, there was a book written in the 1500s, uh, the first book that was about mining as a science. Um, sort of, or as a craft, it had several chapters about how the Romans would not allow mining in certain areas because of the pollution, because it would wreck crops, it Mm. would wreck the land. Um, He had a whole thing about, you know, how how mining was destroying places. Um, And this was, of course, a pro-mining kind of book, but this was in the 1500s. And certainly a lot of the mining engineers that ended up in Colorado were educated. They had read this book because it was kind of the Bible for mining. Um, and so they knew what they were doing. They knew that it was damaging the water and killing the fish, but they just didn't really care. 
um, is what it came down to. The money was rolling in, of course. Yeah, and it was a livelihood. The context was different. Um, The environmental movement certainly changed that. Yeah, and it took a long time. Jonathan, thanks for dropping by the studios and talking to us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Author Jonathan Thompson is an award-winning environmental journalist, former editor, and now writer for High Country News. His most recent book, River of Lost Souls, recounts the Gold King mine spill, what led up to it, and the aftermath of it. He's on a book tour and stopped in at Crested Butte's Towny Books for a presentation. That's it for another edition of the West Elk Word, an original production of KBUT News. You can hear this program Saturdays at noon and listen to this episode and others anytime at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab. This hour of programming is underwritten by the Public Policy Forum of Crested Butte, bringing speakers to discuss local, national, and international issues on Tuesday evenings at 7 p.m. at the Center for the Arts. CrestedButteForum.org for a full list of speakers and topics.